Well, good morning. Welcome to Trinity. It is good to see some of the faces of our college students. No, it is good to see the faces of some of our college students. Sorry, said that wrong. I do. I'm glad to see all of your faces. Sorry for my own distraction there. It's good to be able to spend this time together. Um, grateful for the opportunity that we have to gather and to encourage each other, and it is uh, a good and right thing for us to do. I do want to make a, a note. Next week uh, kicks off our Advent season. We're going to put a pause in our series through Ephesians. We're going to spend some time just focused in on peace this Advent season. The peace of God, the peace of Christ, and hope that it will dwell in us richly, that we would look and behold at the peace, His peace, and how it will reign forever. And so hopefully this Advent season will be a timely encouragement uh, on the peace of God for us today. Also next week, uh, we will not have any of our classes in the hour before our gathering, our corporate worship time of 1030. Instead, at 930, we're going to have a time of fellowship. We'll have donuts and pastries and coffee, uh, hopefully really, really good coffee and um, and we'll get to enjoy that together. So if you wouldn't mind being here at 9.30 in the lobby and the lounge, um, we'll spend that time just enjoying each other's company. And so you're invited to be a part of that next week. If you have a Bible, please turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to end with the last few verses of this incredible chapter, of this incredible section, first half of this most incredible letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the churches in Ephesus and its surrounding region. A letter that is holding up and holding out gospel doctrine. And that's what we've been very focused on this fall and looking at in these three chapters is just the foundation of the God who saves and how he goes about saving us through the person and work of Christ and applying that work to our hearts and lives through the Spirit. And then after the Advent season in the new year, we're going to look at the second half of the letter and how it creates a gospel culture among the people of God in the church. And so that's where we're heading. But let's let's wrap up here this first half together uh, before we enter into a season of advent and rejoicing and anticipating. Uh, let's let's uh let's end with some praise with some doxology. Let's end with these incredible words. Looking at Ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 through 21. Ephesians 3:14 through 21. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, as we come to your word, uh, we pray that you would do a work in our hearts, uh, that you would 
disengage our focus and that we would find our hearts filling with wonder and worship as we consider your truth. Would you do this, God, we pray to your glory and our good in Christ's name. Amen. I want to define a couple of terms. Theology, the word theology, simply means the study of God and who he is and what he does. Theology means the study of God and who he is and what he does. The other term I want us to define is doxology. Doxology is the responsive expression of praise to God for who he is and what he does. One is the study of it, and the other is the response to that study. Now with those definitions, let's consider a couple of additional statements. If your theology, the study of who God is and what he does, does not end in doxology, the praise of God in who he is and what he does, then what you're holding on to is dead religion. Conversely, if your doxology, the giving and expression of praise, isn't rooted in theology, the study of what you're praising, then what you have is idolatry. We need both. We need both. We need to soak our hearts in who God is and what He does and respond to what we find in studying who God is and what He does with praise. Paul's letter to the Ephesians is saturated with both awe-inspiring theology that leads to awe-expressing doxology. Our passage today is the culmination of Paul holding up and holding out gospel doctrine. Truths of who God is and what he does in and through the gospel. And before he gets into how the gospel shapes the culture of God's people, he's caught up in doxology. He can't help but express this praise. You, we read that, and it ends, and you think, that's, the, that's, a, that's a way to end a letter, Paul. That's a good end. That's a good close. Like, how can you go on from there? And that's just part of the point. How can you, how can you continue on the more you study how awesome and amazing God is? And so even there, at the end of his holding up and holding out of these gospel truths and doctrines about the character and nature of God, who he is and what he does, he, he has he has to express this praise. And as we look at the end of this, and as we consider it, this isn't just some sort of information that we are to gain about God and pass some sort of test or win arguments with our friends. It's actually to be transformative to our hearts and to our lives. And my hope is, as we look at these last words of Ephesians 3, that we will want to live lives of doxology. That we will want our lives to be very, the very lives that we have to be expressions of the praise of God, that God is worthy to be praised. And so we need to go about grasping gospel doctrine. And as we do, as we go about grasping doc- gospel doctrine, it leads us to a couple of things that we find in our passage. First is, the more we grasp Gospel doctrine, it is to lead us to humble dependence. And we see that in Paul's prayer that we'll walk through. It is certainly a hope-filled, it is joy-filled, it is also an expression of humble dependence as we gain a greater grasp of who God is. 
And then secondly, we'll find that it leads to hope-filled doxology. That the more we grasp who God is and what He does, especially centralized through the gospel, it leads to hope-filled doxology. So let's tackle first humble dependence. A couple of things that we find in here, or several things that we find, but it's, it's first and foremost for this reason. It's for this reason we find a, a posture of worship. Look again at verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. Here we find a this. The this of for this reason is everything that he said prior to it. So he's referring back to the whole of chapter 1 and chapter 2 and in the first half of chapter 3 in which he's laying out this gospel doctrine. The this of the for this reason is the gospel doctrine. In light of who God is and what God has done, he takes on the posture of worship. Three chapters of declaring and delighting in the greatness and the glory and the goodness and the grace of God. And what does he do? He then bows my knees. Bow my knees, he says, which is an expression of worship. It is awe and adoration for who God is and what God has done. You could call it worshipful prayer or prayerful worship, or it doesn't really matter what you call it because it's all wrapped up together. Either way, it's the appropriate response to everything that you've read up into verse 14. If you want to know how to respond to all the greatness of all of these words in chapter 1 and in chapter 2 and in chapter 3, here is your picture. It is prayerful worship and worshipful prayer. As we take in and we, we see here on the pages of Scripture, this gospel doctrine, it is to tenderize our hearts with awe. It's important to hear that. That, that as you read the Word of God and as we're reading through Ephesians, it is to tenderize our hearts. Our hearts are, are calloused and hardened in this world this, with our own struggle with sin. Life is indeed hard. We have, we have all of the reasons in the world and within ourselves to have hardened and calloused hearts. But that does not make for a great stake. It needs to be tender. It needs to be tenderized. And the gospel doctrine that we're considering in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 is to tenderize our hearts with awe. Certainly not to harden our heads with pride. To tenderize our hearts with awe. It is a posture of worship that Paul is responding to these truths with. And he leads them into this prayerful hope-filled, worshipful response that first is focused on a strengthening Christ-centeredness in the lives of God's people. In response to all that we see in these chapters, Paul prays for a strengthening Christ-centeredness. Let's look at verse 16 in the beginning of verse 17. That according to the riches of His glory... He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The initial thrust of Paul's prayer is that there would be a power, a strengthening in the believers. 
To be strengthened means to become strong or to be made strong or to become powerful. And here we find that it is, the God, it is God the Spirit who makes believers strong. It's the heart of the focus of this part of Paul's prayer for the believers, that God the Spirit would strengthen. Strengthen where? Strengthen in the inner being. Inner being is just simply the code for the deepest core of who you are. Your being, in short, your heart. And Paul, in response to this incredible truth of the gospel, prays that God's people would be strengthened in their inner being so that Christ may dwell in those hearts. As we already said, left to ourselves, our hearts can easily be calloused. Left to ourselves, our hearts are frail. They're cracked, they're broken, they're bruised. They're distracted, they're discouraged, they're dismayed, they're swayed. They're deceptive, they're easily enamored, easily provoked, easily hardened. Left to ourselves, apart from God's grace, as we considered in Ephesians chapter 2, they're dead. When Paul is praying for hearts that have been made alive by God's grace, powerful work of the Spirit, to bring life and faith He is praying that those hearts would be strengthened because the pull to the frailty, the crackedness, the brokenness, the bruises, the distraction, the discouragement, the dismayed, the swayed, the deceived, the easily enamored and provoked and hardened by the things all around is all there all the time. Instead, he prays that our hearts would be strengthened by the Spirit in Christ. How do we have strengthened hearts? Well, it is, forced. it is through faith in Christ, in his life, his death, and our place, his resurrection, his victory over sin, the tomb, and Satan. It is trusting that Christ really and fully and finally dealt with our sin at the cross and declared his victory over sin, death, and the grave when he burst forth from that grave. How do we have our hearts strengthened? Well, we will behold God's grace for us at the cross. We see the sweetness and the sufficiency and the strength of all that God has done for us. I think if you were all to take stock of all the things that are going on around you in your life, the pressures that you face, the struggles that come flooding at you, you would feel easily overwhelmed and outmatched. You would feel weak in comparison to those things. Or if you looked at the situations that are going on in you, you know the things that you struggle with on the inside. Things too deep and too hard to reach. Things too hard to put into words. And you might consider all of those things and feel very overwhelmed by those. So the world around or the world within seems too much to bear. Too hard to handle. What kind of hope, what kind of strength do we have to handle those things? Well, we must look here to see something greater than the struggles around or the struggles within. We need to see a power greater than the things that overpower us, around us, or within us. And the one thing that is greater than them all, all of them combined, all of them just singularly looked at, all of them is the power of God on display. Through Jesus Christ in his life, his death on the cross in our place, and his victory over the grave. 
Those are not accidental things. Jesus didn't stumble into that stuff. He did it on purpose, with power, with the Spirit, and He overcame them. He overcame the world. So, friends, take heart. I know that the things around us and within us are overwhelming. I'm not making light of those. In fact, I'm, I'm right there alongside you. Yes, they are too much for us to bear, but they are not too much for the strength of God at work within. How are we to be strengthened? Well, just as Paul has prayed and modeled here, we're strengthened by the Spirit in Christ. We have nowhere else to look for that sort of strength. For nowhere else has the strength to overcome sin and death and Satan. It is awe-filled, prayerful worship. It is worshipful prayer that Paul responds to these things with. Paul prays that the believer's hearts would be made strong by the Spirit so that Christ would be at the center. And when that takes root and grows in our hearts, we change. And that leads us into the second aspect of this posture of prayer and worship. It's not only a strengthening Christ-centeredness, but it is also a deepening Christ-likeness. Look at the rest of 17 through 19. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. A number of things to wrestle with and and to hear and to receive. First of all, we are to be rooted and grounded. When we are strengthened to be Christ-centered, we will be rooted and grounded beyond any circumstance in the fallen world that we live in. This rooting and grounding conveys a twofold thought. To be rooted and grounded first means that your life, it's fixed. It's fixed. It's stationed on something sturdy, strong, sure, lasting. The world around you is tumultuous. The things, the circumstances of your lives can be tumultuous. The feelings and the thoughts that you have inside can be tumultuous. But that which you are rooted on is not tumultuous. If that root is Christ. To be fixed on something, stationed on Christ. Remember what he declared on the cross. It is finished. God's purposes for our redemption is accomplished in Jesus. And nothing can shake that. And so our lives are to be stationed, fixed on Christ. The other idea that comes from rooted and grounded is that it is fruitful. That our lives are fixed and fruitful. That the nutrition of the gospel saturates the soul and produces growing Christ-centeredness and fruit in our lives. It's fruitful. So Paul prays that our lives would be fixed and fruitful. Fixed and fruitful. How do we go about being fixed and fruitful? Well, we go about deepening and knowing Christ. And knowing Him. To know Christ, he says. 
to know the love of Christ. It is a vast, multi-dimensional love. Paul prays that we deepen in knowing something that surpasses knowledge. So he prays a paradox. I want you to know something that surpasses knowledge. Know something that's too big to know. (laughs) You can't know it all. But he prays it because it's worth knowing. How do we go about knowing something too big? Something so vast, something so deep, so high, so wide, so deep, all of it. How do we know something of that? Well, we need a key to help us know it. I I was not a math major in college. But I know enough math to know that a key is quite helpful. So like with mathematics or logistics, there's a key that helps us navigate then the breadth and length and height and depth. For us in Scripture, that key to to navigate the mathematical mystery of the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ, that key for us to be able to To know that math problem is the cross. The cross is the key to knowing the multivast dimensional love of God for us. How do we know it? Well, we know it through the cross where the perfect one who set down glory and put on humanity. Who put himself under the very word that he gave. Who lived a life that we could not live. That very one who was sinless took that perfect life and put it in our place as a substitute on the cross. Paying a debt that we could never pay. And giving to us a righteousness we could never gain. Taking on the justice of God for all of our sin, for all of God's people from all time. Paying it in full, leaving nothing for us to face, nothing for us to pay. And then going to a tomb, the author of life going into a grave. And bursting forth. Bursting forth from that grave. Comes our Redeemer. How do we know something that surpasses knowledge? Well, we know it. We see it. We have the key to know it as we know the cross. Romans 5.8 God shows His love. This multi-dimensional, vast love. The breadth and the length and the height and the depth of this love. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to clean up our life and get a little bit more church in our lives and then kind of come back and say, okay, we, we, got, we, you know, we got some of the smudges off. He didn't wait for us to get the smudges off. We were filthy. God welcomed us in. That is where Christ-centeredness starts and deepens. It is knowing the vastness of God's love. We know it through Christ. Died for us on the cross. We're to be grounded and rooted. We're to be fixed and fruitful. We're to know Christ, he prays. 
And we're to be filled. To be filled. That we may be filled with all the fullness of God. And to be filled with all the fullness of God is not talking about something that you, you gain in terms of sort of quantity. But it's more speaking to the quality of your life. It's, or another way to put it, it's about transformation, not just simply information. To be filled with the fullness of God means that this knowledge is personal, intimate, and transformative. To know the love of Christ is a personal knowing, an intimate knowing, a transformative knowing. Paul prays that the believer's hearts would be made strong by the Spirit so that Christ would be the center and that there would be a deepening Christ-likeness evident in their lives. That the quality of our lives would be changed, transformed. That you get to experience a little bit now something that you will get to know in full measure forever. 1 John 3, 2 puts it this way. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. God is committed to our growing Christ-likeness. Not only is He committed to it, but He supplies all our need in the now. So Paul prays that we would be filled to the full, that our lives, the quality of our lives, would reflect a deepening Christ-likeness. This humble, Christ-centered, all-filled dependence that we find Paul's response to these glorious truths of the gospel doesn't convey to us that all of this is a drudgery that we drag around in our lives, but rather it is to be transformative in all producing Love and joy to our lives. No matter the circumstances around us. This gospel doctrine isn't a drudgery to drag. But a joy to express. And a humble dependence to foster. This humble dependence gives way then in our passage to a hope-filled doxology. This hope-filled doxology, very shortly, is just simply the very kernel of it is, now to him be glory. That's what Paul says here at the very end in verses 20 and 21. Now to him be the glory, he says. In light of all that we considered, in light of this call and this response to this prayerful worship, worshipful prayer, this awe and this humble dependence, he now says, now to him be the glory. He says a number of things along the way. He says, first of all, who is able, look at verse 20, the beginning part of it. Now to him who is able, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. God is able. Just let that sit there for a second. God is able. This speaks to the power and ability of God to supply. All we need to deepen in Christ-centered likeness. God is able to work in you. In your situation. In your circumstances. You may not feel very able, and that's okay. But God is. God is able. But not only does it communicate to us the ability of God, 
It also says to us the willingness of God. God isn't just able, but God is willing. The emphatic description of God's ability emphasizes His willingness to supply all that we need. Let's just stack that together. Hopefully it's on the screen. But let's just build that out, what we see in this, just the beginning part of verse 20. That God is willing and able to do what? All that we ask. He is willing and able to to do all we ask. But it's not just all we ask. Let's extend it out. All we ask or think of asking. God is able and willing to do all we ask or think of asking. But let's keep going. It's not just all we ask or think of asking. More than all we can ask or think of asking. But it's not just more. Oh no. It's more abundantly than all we can ask or think of asking. But it's not just more abundantly. It's far more abundantly than all we can ask or think of asking. Just let that stack build up. Just visually see it on the screen. Read it in your scriptures. He can do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think of asking. And he is willing. God is worthy of doxology because he alone is the God who is willing and able. And Paul looks at the gospel and sees all of that and is overflowing with doxology. Now let that stack counter the things that you and and my heart feel often. It's just, we can be honest and not afraid to say that we can struggle with unbelief. That we can struggle with doubt. Unbelief is doubting that God can or will. And we can struggle with that. We can feel that tension in us. Maybe you came in here this morning Physically, you're here, but in spirit and heart, you're wrestling, you're struggling. Maybe the things around your life are in your heart and in your mind are are weighing very heavily on you. How do we counter such things? Well, we counter them with the truth of who God is and what God has done. When we take in that stack, it counters our hearts that struggle with unbelief. Instead, gospel doctrine brings to our hearts that which can produce hope. And your hope isn't necessarily tied to circumstances circumstances changing in your life, but to the God who is able and willing to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think of asking. And maybe, and maybe part of that shows up in your life in that God gives you the strength to be sustained through all that which you face. And maybe his strength is showing off in your sustaining presence in the midst of overwhelming circumstances. And maybe you wouldn't have thought to ask for that. And yet God has so supplied it. Take heart, friends. God can and is willing to do far more abundantly than we ask or can think of asking. He is the one who is able. But he's also also able and he's in our very lives. Look at the rest of verse 20 and then into verse 21. 
So according, so he's doing all that, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. The work that he is doing is a work within us. Sometimes we want to think or believe that God is far or distant or cold or uncaring. But gospel doctrine says otherwise. God entered into our humanity, took on our penalty, even to the point of death. Not only that, but personally, God entered into our hearts that were once dead of stones. And he brought life. And he dwells in our hearts. We once who were far off, without hope, without God, are now brought near. Have hope. Have God. Christ now dwells in our hearts. And all of this gospel doctrine is saying to us, beleaguered in this world, with our own struggles, it's saying that God has not given up on you. He hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't given up on you. We must saturate our hearts with these truths because we face so many things that want to convince us otherwise. It is a work that is within us. It is also a work that is happening in the church, it says. God has chosen to display his willing and able grace through the church. Do you guys know that this room represents a ragtag group of people? We are a ragtag group bound together in Christ. A people redeemed. And it's through this ragtag group of people that God is showing off into the region of Nashua that He is the God of grace who is willing and able to save anyone from any place. Again, the church is to show off the worth and worthiness of God. So He is working within us and in the church And in Christ Jesus. All of this is possible because of Jesus. It is only in Christ that we find glory and grace meet together. 2 Corinthians 4.6 says this. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is in Christ through the church, in our very lives, that we see God doing this far more abundantly than we could ask or even think of asking work. He is worthy of praise because of these things. It is to lead to hope-filled doxology in our lives now and forevermore. And that's just what we see here at the end, forever. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The consequences of a God who is and what God has done will last in a forever doxology. I've always been captivated by the Olympic torch. As a kid, I believed the legends that said that that flame uh, that lit that torch is was pulled from the fire of the very first Olympics. Not necessarily true, sorry. (laughs) But as a kid, I thought so. But that Olympic torch, though, symbolizes the light of spirit and knowledge in life. And by passing the flame from one person to another in stages, that torch relay 
that kicks off or launches those Olympic Games expresses the handing down of the symbolic fire from generation to generation. In this room are many generations. And the opportunity that we all have to come together and have this awe-inspired, worshipful, prayerful response of doxology to a God who would save us from all these different generations represented here, from all the kinds of walks of life that represented in this very room or with us on our on, online. All of that is communicating the, the light of spirit and knowledge and life that comes from the gospel doctrine that we're very much holding on to and that we all get to play a part in speaking from generation to generation the worthiness of God. So great, so vast, so immeasurable, so fixed, so sure is the love of God to us in Christ that this flame of doxology will indeed burn forever. We get to be part of something. We will see an increasingly amazing measure for all eternity. What we do now is a little bit of what we get to know forever. And what we do now matters. To everyone in this room, no matter how old, no matter where you are, where you're from, what we do now matters. So let us pattern our lives and our church on what we will do forever. A humble Christ-centeredness and hope-filled doxology. How can such a theology not lead to doxology? How can a doxology exist outside of such a theology? Let's be a people, a church, that holds up and holds out gospel doctrine so that more and more and more and more come to know more and more and more and more the love of Christ with all the fullness of God's grace. Let's pray. God, we thank you for all that you have done to rescue a people to yourself. We thank you for the way that it's not just a nameless, faceless people, but you know us by name. You have entered into our very lives. We're not a number to you. We are a people that you know. You know our hearts. You know our lives right now, in fact. And I pray for those who are in this room or with us online that are feeling overwhelmed by those things. Feeling overwhelmed by the circumstances around us. Feeling overwhelmed by the struggles within. There's probably a lot more of us than we may care to admit that are facing these things. I pray as we take into account these words, words that produce awe and wonder and worship, words that lead our hearts to a humble dependence upon you, words that lead our hearts to a hope-filled doxology, God, I pray that these very words would be timely for those of us who feel overwhelmed by the things around or the things within. You are the God who is able. You are the God who is willing. You are able and willing to do far more abundantly than we can ask or even think of asking. And so would you strengthen us this day to face the circumstances around or within 
Help us to see all of this on display in Jesus, this strength, this power, this grace. God, we pray in Christ's name for your glory and our good. Amen. Would you please stand as we give thanks together. 1 Thessalonians says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you.